Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I sit down with Jim Masturzo, Head of Asset Allocation at Research Affiliates. We talk to Jim about how investors utilize Research Affiliates Asset Allocation Interactive Tool and what goes into calculating those expected return estimates and ranges. Jim shares his thoughts on inflation, whether cryptocurrencies could be included as an asset class in the future, and many other interesting themes around asset allocation. We have a new concluding question for the podcast, and Jim was the first person we asked this question, and he delivered. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoy this discussion with Jim Masturzo. Hi, Jim. Thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, I see that you went to Duke for your MBA. Is that right? I did. Okay. You know, Jack and I both went to UConn, right? Uh, I, I saw that somewhere. I, I kind of blocked it out, though. But but go ahead. I'm, I'm interested. Well, no, we were going to say we would understand if you wanted to just kind of stop the podcast here. Given... <laughs> <laughs> we are sure yeah, episode ever. <laughs> One bad season, one bad season, but uh, we'll be back. Coach K's got another, uh, you know, couple of years in him, maybe one more title run, and uh, then we'll see what happens. Yeah, good stuff. I, I always loved Duke basketball, but then when I went to UConn, and we had a couple great, those old school, like, Duke-UConn games were just, they were phenomenal games. I will say, I, I'm a college basketball fan, but it's not... Um... It's not what it was in the you know in the '90s and even the '80s, and maybe I'm just too nostalgic. But uh, you had some just great rivalries back then that, that we just don't have as as much today because of the players. Um, you know, the, the one and done I think has has hurt it a little bit, but it's still a fun sport to watch. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we're going to talk a lot about asset allocation and sort of your area of expertise and, and what you guys do at Research Affiliates. But I wanted to ask, kind of starting at maybe. Um, the company level and research affiliates has a unique model in that, you know, it has a large influence over a very large pool of assets, but it doesn't manage, you know, those assets directly as I understand it. So I just wanted to, I don't know if you could maybe share some historical perspective as to why the firm is sort of set up that way. And then maybe if there's any advantages of that approach um, that you can see. Sure. So you're right. We talk about ourselves as a large asset manager that doesn't manage any assets. And really what that means is that we develop strategies and then we license those strategies to other firms um, who actually then create the investable products. Um, So for a lot of our quantitative strategies, um, you know, we license them to the the large mutual fund ETF players. that run money based on our indices. We also do direct sub-advisory of um, particular um, you know, portfolios, but again, for other asset managers. The reason the, the firm was set up that way by Rob Arnott back in 2002 when he founded the firm is that you know, Rob has you know, decades of experience in the industry, and he said, well, you know, with my next venture, basically, I just want to focus on the things that I like to do and things where I think I have a you know, competitive advantage. So 
things like you know trading or, or back office or you know distribution having large sales forces were just things that he said well look I don't want to build a you know a firm of a thousand people and frankly I, I don't think we have a competitive advantage in those areas so let's just focus on what we do and what we like to do so we we term it as we just focus on the stuff that's fun um, I want to ask you quick about your background. You, know, you you have a very unique background for someone in the investment management industry. I, I know you, I think, believe your degree is in electrical engineering. Um, and I know you've talked in other podcasts about how you, you've learned to code and, you know, you think that's been a, bit, a big positive for you. And, you know, I've seen that myself, too. You know, I, I sort of taught myself to code a while back and I've seen a lot of benefits in terms of, you know, my investment career. And I'm just wondering how the mindset that comes from those things, from electrical engineering and from coding, how you think that benefits you as an investor? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so you said I got my degree from Cornell in electrical engineering. I never was a practicing electrical engineer. Maybe this is just my uh, my inability to stay focused on things that I you know I spent four years studying something really hard. I should have had a lot more fun in college. Is basically the the point of of this. Um, I spent a lot of time studying to figure out I didn't want to do that. Um, but to really get to the crux of your question about engineering and, and in particular writing code. It just, to me, comes back to discipline and organization. Um, the, and this isn't just about you know, quantitative um, strategies. I think the same thing applies to fundamental strategies and the idea of why are we doing what we're doing. You know, if we add a particular signal to a portfolio, what's its purpose? How does it fit? Not just, you know, not just is it a good signal, but how does it fit in the overall architecture of the product? Um, why are we adding a position to the portfolio? And so. Um, engineering just makes you very disciplined at thinking of those things and you know writing code is, is the same thing although I would say you know in the industry today it's I think it's really hard to be in the industry today if you can't mine data and, and you know look at data and, and slice and dice data and, and code just obviously makes that um, you know easier and faster to do um, you know the other point I like to make is that engineering is, is a very grounding type uh, type of um, career in that there are real, I like to say there are real world ramifications to doing things. If you, you know, develop a new process for building steel and you build a steel beam that isn't very good, well, the bridge fails and, you know, we have very uh, large and, and we can see the impacts. In our industry, it's a little bit different. You, you always hear the, well, it just didn't work yet. <laughs> Don't worry, this signal's great. It just didn't work. And my spreadsheet, it's great. And so, this idea, and I tell my team all the time, the numbers on your spreadsheet aren't numbers on a spreadsheet. They're dollars, they're somebody's retirement, they're whatever they are. But you need to think about that there are real-world ramifications to what we're doing. You played a pretty significant role, I think, in the building and the development of Research Affiliates Asset Allocation Tool. So I'm guessing some of this, you know, the engineering sort of mindset to some extent, plus the code uh, you know, te technological understanding of technology, you know, played uh, a role in, 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 in you being able to contribute and develop that. But, and by the way, it's a, it's a tool that we find ourselves um, tying back to a lot when we're sort of looking at expected um, returns and trying to understand where asset classes may go in the future. Um, but for those investors who maybe haven't seen the tool, can you talk um, a little bit more about what goes into it? And I think maybe what in investors can learn from the data that is being presented um, in the tool? Sure. So the, the tool, the asset allocation tool, which we call our asset allocation interactive, because we 
do want it to be interactive. Um, you can create your own portfolios. There are lots of different things and, and different ways to interact with the tool. So uh, for anyone who you know hasn't seen it, you can link to it from our research affiliates website. Um, again, it's just uh, our asset allocation interactive tool. But its purpose, um, or its main purpose, is to show um, long term. So we think of long term as the next decade. So what is the expected return for an asset class over the next 10 years? Um, and we show something on the order of 130 different assets from you know, individual country, equity markets, to commodities, bonds, currencies. Um, we have a few private markets on there, although I'll admit that's a much harder thing. Uh, when you get into active strategies, it's a much harder thing to try to forecast um, long-term future returns. But what we've noticed, um, you know, uh, and it still goes on today, and hopefully to a lesser extent, given you know our tool and, and some others from other firms. But the idea that the way historically that investors would think about what's the return of an asset going forward is they would look at the historical data series, they'd take the average, and they'd say, well, you know, if U.S. equities you know gave seven and a half percent over the last hundred years, the next decade I'm going to get seven and a half percent. Same thing for bonds. I've gotten 4.5% for 100 years, I'll probably get 4.5% today. Bonds is a great one because then you say, well, but bond yields are at zero. Where is that 4.5% coming from? You're basically taking yields to, uh, to significantly negative uh, territory. And then someone says, oh, yeah, that doesn't make any sense anymore. So um, with the tool and the point we try to make is that starting valuations matter. If you buy something that's expensive, uh, and you know, we can talk about what expensive means, but if you buy something that's expensive today, the idea is it should um, give some of that back in the future and, and perform worse than it has historically. And if you buy something that's cheap, it, you know, the opposite should happen. So mean reversion happens in markets and is an important um, component over, you know, say, a, a decade um, you know, time period. What's nice about it is you can kind of drill down into, you know, you have the core asset classes, but then you can drill down like a level. So for equities, you have, you know, U.S. emerging, U.S. small, U.S. large. I'm just curious, have you guys ever thought about factor, uh, expected factor returns? Yeah, it's interesting. We have another tool uh, called our Smart Beta Interactive um, that actually does look at factor returns um, through a, a methodology that Rob published a few years ago. We've talked about inner um you, you can ask the question why do you have two tools and not just one and um there's a long history on that which i won't bore you with and we've talked about how to better integrate the tools um because we run into folks all the time who say oh i use this one or that one and they're like why don't you know and i'm like oh have you looked at the other like oh you have another tool <laughs> um so uh on our part i think it's our bad that we have two tools but we have looked at that um we do do some work there again as you get into you know, strategies, things that are a little more active away from, you know, passive, uh, you know, asset classes. You know, there's a little more nuance that you need to think about as far as, you know, say even valuations go. If you have a high valuation today, but the portfolio is turning over um, in the next month, does it matter as much? Um, doesn't say, not to say it doesn't matter, but you need to think about some of those types of, uh, of features. You, um, you talked about mean reversion and valuations, and I'm wondering if you could talk about the other inputs that go into this. So when you're looking at projecting the long-term returns of any asset class, what are the main things you would look at to try to do that? Yeah, so we start um, with the standard you know, Gordon growth model. 
So basically says that the uh, you know the return of a, an asset is its dividend yield or or some cash flow yield plus the growth in those cash flows. So the underlying assumption of the Gordon growth model is that yields stay constant forever. Um, and that's a great place to start. And that's where I think any valuation model in asset classes should start. Um, the nice thing about it is that the yield is something you can look up in most cases. If you want the bond yield, you can go to your Bloomberg terminal or your favorite, um, you know, favorite data source and, and look up the yield or, or for equity indices, obviously those are available. And then you just have to come up with assumptions on kind of how those cash flows are gonna grow. Now that's a, a harder thing to do, but, um, but again, a good place to start for, uh, for the model. But then we, we look at and say, well, you know, yields aren't constant. Uh, PE ratios, PE multiples don't stay constant forever. They do move up and down. Um, and so that's where the mean reversion um, uh, part comes in. Now, it's interesting because the pushback that we always get from our site is usually the return of, pick your favorite asset class, is too low which once you talk to the person, you find out they have a really large allocation to that asset class, and therefore um, they're, they're really upset that you know we have a very low number on, on uh, high-yield bonds. I'm just throwing something out. But, um, um, and what I always try to, to make the point is, you know, what are you trying to do with the expected returns? Most of the time, what we're trying to do is to look at a set of assets and their return and build a portfolio. And if that's your purpose, then the actual absolute value that I show doesn't really matter. What actually matters is the rank order, so are things ordered in the right way, and the relative differences between assets. Because if you throw those in an optimizer or any other portfolio construction um, you know, mechanism, if you increase all the returns by 5% or lower them by 5%, the portfolio stays the same. So. Uh, it's really important and we try to um, you know, make this case that what we have to think about is, is the entire set and how those go together, um, not any individual asset. Now, if you're an endowment and you need to know what your spending ratios are and you need to get the absolute value, uh, a different animal, that's a different question and, and we can talk about that. Yeah, one of the good things you guys do with this, and I, we, we see this with investors all the time, is they'll take a tool like yours and they'll say, all right, you know, you're projecting a 5.2% real return. So I expect a 5.2% return. But you guys really talk about this as a, as a range of expected outcomes. And I, can you talk a little bit about probabilities and maybe how you look at these expected returns in the context of that? Well, I appreciate that all, you only want to you only want it to the first decimal. Uh, sometimes uh, there are <laughs> folks who really want uh, you know go out three or four decimals, and, and that's the number. Uh, you know, I've, I've uh, worked my spending out based on that. Um, you're absolutely right. Like this is a forecasting tool. Any forecast model has noise. There's just unknowns. Um, if we knew with exact accuracy, you know, the expected return of just one asset. If we said, look, I know that, I don't know anything else, but I know that emerging market equities are going to return 7% for the next 10 years. I'd go to my bank, I'd borrow as much money as I could, and I'd buy as many as emerging market equities as I could for the next 10 years, and I'd go sit on the beach. We don't know that. We know there's noise in everything. So um, that noise comes from really two places. One is there's noise just from the models themselves. When we create forecasting models, there's noise in the models. Um, 
you know, we don't have to get into the you know, statistical metrics on how to measure noise and things like that. I, I don't think it's, I think most of your, your viewers probably already know that stuff anyways. Um, but there's noise just from the models. And then there's noise from the fact that over any particular decade, an asset isn't going to, you know, hit its mean, even if we knew the mean exactly right or the, the expectation of, of the distribution of returns perfectly in any decade, we can be above or below that. So with our expectations and it's on our site, we show a distribution around that. And that distribution is, is mostly correlated to the volatility of the particular asset. So equities have a higher range around their expected returns. Bonds are much tighter. I know a big part of your role is building asset allocation models. And, you know, we, we've had a situation with a 60-40 portfolio where in the past decade, it's probably, I mean, I don't know if it's been the best decade in history, but it's certainly been a very, very strong decade. And I'm just wondering how you think about that portfolio going forward. Um, you know, we, we have situations now where we have fiscal stimulus and the potential for inflation, and people are sort of questioning whether stocks and bonds are enough going forward. I'm just wondering how you think about that, how you think about the 60-40 going forward, uh, coming off good returns and maybe looking at the future. Yeah, it's really interesting. So the 60-40 portfolio from December of 1999 has given 6.4% per year and a sharp ratio of, of above 0.5. And I picked December of 1999 because that was the height of the tech bubble and probably the worst time to start for the 60-40. And you still got 6.4%. Um, if you just look at the last decade, as you said, uh, the number is north of 10. So uh, it's just been a, a great time if you were in the 60-40 portfolio. Um, but you're right. What does that mean going forward? Well, you know, 20 years ago, you know, we had bond rates, you know, two to four percent. Now, you know, uh, you know short-term T-bills are at zero, and the 10 years at whatever one and a half, uh, you know, whatever it is today. Um, we use the Schiller Cape uh, as our PE metric, our metric for valuations in the U.S. That's over 30. Uh, it's been over 30 for quite some time. Um, which is a lot of the pushback that, that we hear on that is, well, you know, you've been telling us the, the Cape is, you know, <laughs> 33 for the last five years. It's still 33. So um, arguably, we understand that, that timing isn't uh, timing with some of these valuation ratios isn't a perfect science. But when I think about it um, or on our site, we use that information and we show a relatively low expected return for the 60-40 portfolio. It's you know, uh, you know, close to zero, um, you know, slightly north of that, but basically close to zero. And, but the way I think about it is, you know, investing is really about trade-offs. So will, could the U.S. stock market continue to go higher even at elevated, um, elevated multiples? Absolutely, it could. But would you rather, you know, buy into something that's trading at a multiple of 30 or look at like, you know, emerging market stocks that are trading at 16. So that trade-off, the probability of something going higher from a, a lower valuation versus a higher valuation is just is higher. So um, that's not to say that emerging markets and US, uh, US markets should trade at the same multiple. Uh, there's a very good reason that emerging markets trade at a lower multiple, but still you're talking about something that's half as big. Um, you know, it's the same thing, um, you know, even on the bond side, it's a little bit tougher because global bond yields are, are basically zero or, or negative in, in so many different places. But the 60-40, just from those metrics, you know, has some headwinds, um, you know, going forward. 
Yeah, you mentioned bonds, and I wanted to ask you about bonds because bonds might be the toughest asset class to make a case for right now. You know, I mean, bonds kind of serve two purposes for you. You know, they produce a yield, and then they help you in, you know, deflationary shocks. And, you know, with yields at levels they are right now, you could argue they may not do a very good job of either one of those. I mean, do you think there's ever a situation with something like bonds where they, they don't belong in a portfolio, or do you think you really have to more balance their long-term benefit, um, even in situations where maybe they don't look good in the short term? Yeah, I, th I think the question... It somewhat depends on, on who you are, um, but definitely depends on, you know, where you are in the investing cycle. So if you're, you know, a person, let's just take an individual who's, you know, approaching retirement or is getting to the last later stages of their, you know, work life, um, you're more concerned with capital preservation than capital appreciation. I definitely think bonds still have a place in your portfolio. Um, you know, you're getting one and a half percent on the 10 year bond, which is better than you're getting in you know, savings accounts or CDs or anything like that. Um, now I'll say I tend to be less worried about um, rising yields than others. Uh, I've written about a little bit, um, you know, yield curve controls and the fact that I do think that if yields rise, you know, much over, call it two, two and a half percent, the Fed's going to step in and just, you know, peg that rate. So capital loss on bonds doesn't concern me as much as it concerns some others. Um, you know, we can talk about the fact that there's, you know, the U.S. has $28 trillion in debt. And as yields continue to rise, that debt continues to get more expensive. And we're not reducing that. In fact, we're trying to add to it at record uh, record speeds. Um, I think there's a there's a new prize for who can add the most trillions to the debt in the shortest amount of time. And, uh, <laughs> um, uh, you know, it doesn't even matter which party. Both parties are, you know, uh, do the same thing. So um, I think bonds do have a have a place now for you know obviously larger institutions there are you know opportunities to look at you know bond replacement type strategies and and there are a lot of things coming out to say you know bonds are dead so you know here's my whatever strat low volatility income producing strategy frankly a lot of the ones i've looked at are are underwhelming um I think they, you know, some of them may turn out to be okay. I think that part of the industry is still a little bit um, underdeveloped. Uh, five years from now, I think we'll be seeing much better bond replacement strategies than we are today, um, especially given that, that I don't see bond yields rising anytime you know, soon. And then on the stock side, you know, a lot of us that look at sort of historical data on stocks have had this challenge of, you know, if you look at the historical average CAPE, I don't know what it is, 17, 18, something like that. Is that right? It's about 16, uh, 16 to 17, depending on how you measure it and what start date and all that good stuff. And then, and then we have this period, you know, in the past couple of decades where we've been, most of the time we've been above that. And so it sort of leads to the question, you know, have things changed in the market? When we're looking at mean reversion, you know, should we be looking at reversion back to that historical average? Or should we say, you know, things have changed in the market that justify a higher valuation. So, you know, we might be reverting back to a higher mean. How do you think about that? Yeah, it's a great, great question. So um, the easiest way to look at, you know, again, the Schiller Cape, which, um, one of the nice things about the Schiller Cape is that Professor Schiller publishes a, uh, a spreadsheet that anyone can download from his website and, and actually see the numbers and look at the, you know, what's the average over the last 10 years, 50 years, 100 years, whatever. And you know, as, you said, it's, as you said, it's in the, you know, call it high teens, mid to high teens. Now, I'm a believer in, you know, in 1871, the U.S. was a very different market than it is today. Um, you know, it was, you know, some would say it was an emerging market at that time. And so, um, 
the way we think about it is that, yeah, that means should that average uh, should change over time. We're probably not going to trade back to a 16 anytime soon. I mean, even the, you know, the depths of the financial crisis, um, I think we got down to a PE of 12, uh, Schiller PE of 12, and that lasted about three or four months before we were back to, you know, to the average. So even, you know, something that monumental of an event, we barely touched the, the you know, 150 year average. Um, so we're, we're much bigger fans of, of exponentially weighted moving averages, kind of upweighting the more recent history. Now, we don't want to throw away that old history. Um, you know, we're believers in all that data still has, a, has an impact or should, you know, play into um, how we think about, <clears throat> excuse me, the fair value. Uh, but it does move. And so on our site, uh, on our interactive site, we make a very simple, um, a very simple assumption. Take that 16 we're trading at 33 today. Let's just assume that the actual fair value is somewhere in the halfway between the two. So call it 24, 25, and that actually happens to be the average over the last um, you know 20 to, to 30 years since the mid 90s. Um, and and we're, we're comfortable with that. But again, even if you do that, still expensive. Um, one, one of the things we, we've heard a lot of people talk about, you know, in recent years is this whole idea of intangible assets and the idea that the companies that are leading the market now are, are very, very different types of companies than the companies that were leading the market in the past. And I, I know you guys aren't using price to book here where you'd see the, the most impact of intangible assets, but I'm wondering if that impacts at all what you're doing and how we look at valuations, the fact that we have these high intangible companies that are leading the market now. Yeah, so um, some of my colleagues have actually written about this and, and published on intangibles and, and did some work and basically found that, yeah, there's, there is value um, in creating, say, the standard, um, you know, value portfolio, the, the, even just using, you know, the price to book, as you mentioned, creating the standard price to book uh, portfolio, but including intangibles and not just in the U.S., but looking at it, you know, internationally. And what they find is that the adjusted, you know, price to book does uh, subsume the, the old school sort of standard price to book. So we would agree there is value in doing that. Um, now, with what I do with asset allocation, um, it's not as big a thing as we start to look cross asset, um, you know, including intangibles, not including intangibles is, is less important. But as you drill down into say what your equity allocation is, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's an important, uh, important factor. And, and for all the things you just said that economies are changing, accounting rules are changing, um, you know, what, what companies are, are leading the market, the distribution of companies in the market all, all makes sense. Uh, Jim, in the tool right now, um, where are like the three maybe, maybe opportunities in asset classes for investors and where would you see maybe are the three biggest risks? I, I, I think you've, you've sort of touched on these to some extent with some of your answers, but, you know, is there anything that like jumps out at you that this is, you know, this asset class looks really good for the projected returns and, and these might not look so good? So where where are those opportunities and risks? So, you know, it always starts, and, and for anyone who looks at the site, uh, the first thing you see is a scatter plot of our expected risk and return. And um, there are a couple of dots, uh, it's a scatter plot. So there's a couple of dots in the upper right that show, you know, higher risk, but also much higher return. And it's, uh, it's emerging markets and it's, uh, or emerging market stocks and developed market stocks. And, you know, a few years ago, it was much more emerging market stocks than developed market stocks. Um, and what we've seen is a little bit of a shift uh, you know, over the last, 
definitely you know 12 to 24 months where you know as emerging markets have rallied a little bit um, developed markets haven't we're seeing uh, a little more um, a little more equal uh, between the two but that's where you know we're looking at um, you can actually drill down on the site and look at individual countries and a country like the UK looks uh, extraordinarily cheap for us uh, and something that you know we're interested in now for developed markets no problem you know sort of drilling in looking at countries we have a lot of data we have um, has decades of data to, to do the analysis um, I, I only say this because if you drill in on the site you can also look at individual emerging markets and what you see is a phenomenally uh, high expected return for uh, I think it's Turkey and Russia now let me just put the caveat of I'm not telling anyone to go out and, and put a lot of money into Turkey or Russia these are you know it's the same model. The model we think works, but you know you're priming the model with a lot less data. Um, we also know there's a lot more risk in those countries. You know they're trading at, uh, you know we're talking mid 20s, mid 30s percent volatility range. So those those numbers can be all over the map. Um, but yeah, that's where we're seeing you know opportunities. That's what we've been um, been talking to our clients about. Overall, the entire efficient frontier has flattened out though over the last year. Um, obviously with you know basically bull markets in almost every market over the last uh you know well it's, i guess it's been a year now as we, we looked at it's, uh you know may so we'll call it 13 months um of the bull market we talked about bonds bonds are a stretch again i still think they have a position in in portfolios but you know credit we're seeing um you know historically low spreads in both investment grade and high yield um, it's really becoming hard to make a case for those particular markets um, unless you have a really strong you know feeling on you know the Fed is going to backstop the, the high yield market and they're going to buy the bonds and all that sort of stuff things we saw a year ago without that you know making three percent you know three percent spread on high yield bonds um, you know the default rate is probably you know equal to north of that um, normal times and then you get into crisis periods can be way north of that so those are areas that you know we're um, not as bullish on um, I wanted to uh, sort of ask you about bubbles like Rob are not the founder of research affiliates right has written a lot about bubbles actually the reason we're sort of talking today is because I think he may have read one of Jack's pieces on bubbles where Jack quoted Rob and um, that's kind of how we, we we got in touch um, to begin with in terms of having you on but you know do you do you think that we can identify bubbles in advance and and just you know they're clearly difficult to to time um but there is there anything that an individual investor can do um you know in terms of responding to areas of the market where there is a bubble yeah it's uh you know i always like to say everyone can uh, well everyone can identify a bubble after the fact so that's we can all agree on that and um uh, I always laugh every time I see a headline of, you know, so-and-so who predicted the financial crisis and so-and-so who predicted this crisis. You know, everybody's, uh, you know, those, those same folks predicted 10 other crises that didn't happen that, that nobody talks about. So, um, you know, in hindsight, yeah, we can predict bubbles. Great. That doesn't help us. Prior to that, you know, before bubbles, we can look at assets and we can pretty clearly identify what we think are, you know, expensive. Um, but again, expensive is does nothing for timing. Uh, 
the time horizons of these things, you know, how long they can last. Um, you know, the old quote of, you know, the market can stay, uh, whatever, uh, crazy longer than you can stay in uh, solvent. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm poorly paraphrasing, but that whole thing still, you know, um, remains true today. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, the U.S. stock market, the S&P has been trading at a Schiller P.E. over 30, which is, you know, as high as it was in 29 and, and at the height of the tech bubble for, you know, uh, half a decade or more now. And um, so I think what's important is to think about, again, trade-offs. So it's really about probabilities of future return and, and probabilities of, of expected return. Um, might expensive markets continue to get more expensive absolutely um and if that's all you have to choose from then it doesn't really matter just buy the market and and that's your best option but in most cases if you're willing to you know widen out your your view a little bit look at things that maybe you weren't looking at before by and large there are usually opportunities to buy things that uh look cheaper or are less bubble like less frothy um, so I think the idea isn't to try to, you know, time bubbles or, or anything like that, you know, go to cash. I'm going to go into an asset and then I'm going to go to cash and wait for the bubble to burst and go back in the asset. Um, that sort of narrow cash asset view is just uh, too many people have it. Um, and I think that's what, what really causes, um, you know, poor performance over time. Yeah, it's interesting. I just wrote an article this week and I was talking about what investors might consider in terms of trying to protect their portfolio or protect their profits. And that concept of, you know, looking at different asset classes that maybe haven't performed as well as something like U.S. stocks and just rebalancing and sort of tilting a little bit more towards those, you know, or considerations that people might want to be thinking about um, as they look to, you know, maybe protect their portfolio a little bit more. You know, it's interesting. Um... Not too many investors admit this, but the idea of you know keeping up with my neighbor is an important uh, important to a lot of a lot of folks out there, whether they admit it or not. And if that's the case, if you just want to have the same experience as you know the person next door, then really don't worry about any of this stuff because um, you're just going to be you're just going to be disappointed. And basically, and you know as, as we would talk about it, your tracking error to your neighbor, your tracking error tolerance is so low that uh, you really just want to use that person as they become your default benchmark. Um, and I think we need to be honest with ourselves about that. Is that really what I care about? Is it, you know, I want to know when I go to the party on Sunday that, and someone's bragging about their, uh, you know, their returns in this, that, or the other asset, can I, you know, brag as well? Or am I in this for a different, uh, you know, different goals? I want to ask you just quickly about inflation. Um, inflation is something we haven't seen in quite a while, um, but you know it might be coming. Uh, we don't know. It looks like you know just given how much money and liquidity is out there, um, it seems like it's sort of on the horizon. You're certainly seeing it in different you know commodity prices and the price of lumber and all these different things. Um, whether it's persistent or not, you know we don't know. But how do you sort of think about that? Um, when you're thinking about sort of developing these asset allocation tools, I do know that you can flip on your tool. You can go from real to nominal returns. So, you know, when does that when does that change in your mind where you up, you know, you, you reflect higher inflation it, sort of in the tool? Yeah, so the tool is really meant to 
be very data driven. And um, as you said, we haven't seen high inflation, you know, in 30 years, 40 years now, actually, um, since we've really seen, I think, what what we and the, and, uh, the developed world consider, you know, high inflation, uh, obviously, in the, the emerging world, um, high inflation, what we would consider high is you know, more of a normal um, uh, sort of normal phenomenon. But the tool is meant to be very data driven. So to the extent that we're 40 years out from that, it's not going to capture um, what you could almost term as a regime shift from, you know, the, the great moderation of you know, 3% inflation, which used to be kind of normal. Now we're at 2% and 3% sort of freaks everybody out. Um, it's not going to capture that type of a, of a shift. Now, when we build portfolios, we think about what the tool provides, which is very data driven to do we want to start to put in more of a, you know, again, regime shift type um, environment. And so we think about uh, and do things like running surveys and, uh, you know, amongst ourselves and amongst others. And at some point, I actually want to, um, I have this idea of putting a survey into uh, the tool, which basically will say, well, here's our expected returns. What do you think they are? Uh, and I think it'd be kind of interesting to then provide back to the community what, you know, what people think. Um, and so we do capture and we will, you know, in our products, um, take what comes out of the tool and augment it for the subjective type um, assessments of, you know, is inflation coming? What does that mean? What does even high inflation mean? I don't think we're going back to 12% inflation anytime soon. In fact, I think we get to 5% inflation and, you know, everyone starts to, to freak out a little bit. Um, and then there's, you know, when you think about inflation, there's a number of different ways to slice it. Uh, you mentioned commodity prices. Uh, as someone who's trying to do some home renovations, uh, I'm acutely aware of lumber prices uh, and, and uh, lumber price inflation. Um, but to me, a lot of that is very you know, transitory. A lot of that is supply chain driven. Um, it's still pandemic driven. Um, you know, the, the, these mills can't get enough people to, to come and, and do the jobs and you know, shipping uh, issues and, and um, all that sort of thing. So I think a lot of that stuff kind of works itself out here, hopefully, as we you know, move into the um, you know, vaccine phase and all, all of that stuff. Then you mentioned, you know, fiscal stimulus and, and money printing and, and the, the spending. And, and that's something that definitely, you know, is, is on our radar. How much is, is too much, right? Um, at what point uh, are we just, you know, giving away or, or, or um, you know, whether it be universal basic income or, or other programs or even just, you know, infrastructure spending that we're talking about, how much is too much? And then balancing that with the headwinds, uh, you know, we used to talk a lot about deflationary headwinds, um, technological advancement, robotization, um, you know, uh, some of these manufacturing organizations aren't going to need as many people as they used to because they've basically just automated it. I can run the robot 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, I can't do that with people, obviously. So I think as much as, you know, there is talk of inflation. I tend to be more on the muted side of it that I think we'll see some some bubbles. I think we're again we're seeing a blip right now. Um, we may see some you know minor pops, but over say a decade, I actually think the headwinds are, are much more meaningful than the uh, the tailwinds for inflation.
Um, I wanted to ask you um, about the idea of running systematic models and, and also incorporating human discretion into them. You, you talked to, when I, I listened to your podcast with Corey Hofstein, and, and you talked about this a little bit, and it's something we struggle with as, as people who run systematic models, you know, and, and the, inf the inflation and the fiscal stimulus is probably a good example of that. You know, we, we have these models we run that work over the long term, and then you have a variable that gets introduced that may in some ways be unprecedented. And I'm wondering how you think about that, how you think about running the systematic model, but also, you know, bringing in human discretion when, when it may be appropriate. Yeah, it's a it's a big challenge, but I will say just just personally um, and and really as a firm uh, that this is true. The idea of we think there is still value in human discretion. Um, you know, much of the industry is going to pure quant. The data is, tells you everything. Models, um, and, and in certain cases that can be fine. But for the most part, we look at things and say, look, we as investment professionals have been doing this a long time. Um, we have certain perceptions, uh, certain things that we can see, certain things that the data just aren't in the data. You can't create a factor for everything. Um, and so we do believe there's a lot of value in having you know, human discretion. Now, that said, the trick is really around how to size that. Um, how much impact do we want that to have? And we've set rules in most of our um, most of our products would say, look, we know that on average, um, uh, you know, uh, if we look historically at how a lot of these, say, adjustments have done, when anytime we've gone off model, we can look historically at how that's done, um, what were we good at, what were we not good at, um, and based on that, we've, uh, we've come around to sizing our expectations, usually around 10%. So you can say, you know what, the model says X, these are our allocations, these are our positions. We have an alternative view. Let's put that in at, at 10%. Now, if we start to see that coming to fruition, well, one thing that happens is the data starts to pick it up. And so then it starts to move in that direction. And then we might even upweight it a little bit from there. But um, I think the worst thing you can do though is, is just, you know, be humble. I think we need to be humble in how much we know and don't know, but also let's not overdo it and say, well, we don't know anything and the machine knows everything because um, that's rarely the case. Uh, remember, everybody's mining the same data. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, any uh, any particular insight that you can gather, um, you know, you should you should really put it through its paces and, and see if you want to you know, put money against it. I wanted to ask you about Bitcoin, but I did not want to ask you about uh, your projection for the future of Bitcoin. Um, what I wanted to ask you about it in the context of is as someone who builds asset allocation strategies, because this is sort of the whole crypto landscape is sort of this new asset class that has come on the scene. And I'm wondering for someone like you who builds asset allocation portfolios, how you think about, you know, when if a new asset comes on the scene, how you think about when, you know, you might incorporate that into your portfolios and sort of what are the characteristics you would want of like a new asset class for it to be appropriate to put it into asset allocation portfolios? Yeah, it's a great question. Thank you for not asking me what Bitcoin is going to do, because if, if you say up, you've irritated half the audience. And if you say down, you've irritated the other half. And uh, so there's really no, <laughs> there's no safe or right answer. And, uh, and I don't know anyways. Um, I'm a believer in trying things out and not necessarily to put in a portfolio or in one of our you know asset allocation strategies right off the bat but i think as investment professionals we should be dipping our toe in, the, in a, a bunch of different waters um you know 
cryptocurrency is, is a good example and, and I'll broaden beyond Bitcoin. Um, you know, there are other projects out there that I think are interesting. You know, Ethereum is obviously the other one that everyone talks about. And then there's, you know, a litany of, of others. So the first thing to do before putting something in a strategy is to understand it. Um, the number of the number of things I read where someone has a very strong opinion, um, pro or, or anti cryptocurrencies, and often it's it's anti, but have never really tried it or investigated it or really understand the the nuances. You know, I, I just think that's we're not doing a good job for our clients. We need to be investigating these things and understanding them before. Um, uh, just for the benefit of the clients. And then once we get to a point we're comfortable, then we might consider putting them in the portfolios. You know, simple things. These are 24-hour markets. Most of the markets we trade are not 24-hour markets. Um, if you want to experience a, a, you know, a, fun, uh, a fun thing with crypto, you put a few dollars in. And with the volatility of some of these coins, you, know, you go to bed and you wake up in the morning and you're 10% moved one way or the other. What does that mean? You know, how do you, you know, think about hedging? If you're going to put that in a portfolio, how do you think about hedging that position for times when you're not looking at it? Do you have to, um, you know, there's the, to actually put it in a product or, or the products that we're looking at. Um, I would say the, you know, the, the infrastructure isn't quite there yet. You know, you still have all of these different exchanges. Some trade these coins, some trade those coins. You need to do all the, you know, the, the between exchange moves and the costs that go into that, um, you know, trading between, you know, uh, the coins and the stable coins to then move to different, all that kind of infrastructure, all those transaction costs are meaningful. Our perspective is that industry isn't quite there for what we want to do with our particular, um, with the products that we're managing, uh, but it may get there. And, um, you know, when we look at once we get there, what happens, then we look at, you know, measuring the data of these things is really difficult, right? Bitcoin has uh, 10 years, 12 years, whatever. Um, most of it, it's like talking about, you know, the U.S. stock market in the 1800s, you know, little liquidity in the early years. So really, you're, you start to look at the last five or six years. So the data is not going to tell you a lot. When we talk about correlations, um, you know, how many times have, have we all seen Bitcoin is uncorrelated to everything? That's great. Let's go back to March of 2020 and it, its beta went just as high as, you know, anything else. So we need to be a little bit, uh, you, know, uh, you know, careful when we, when we look at just the data. Um, but that does matter, right? Um, we still want to know on average what the correlations are, what the, what's the downside. You know, can we hedge? What kind of hedging act, uh, tools are out there? The futures markets are starting to grow in some of these things, although not quite um, as liquid as you know we would necessarily like them uh, for some of the you know again for the capacity issues and, and some of the things we're running. But um, but I uh, you know uh, sort of off topic from your question, I'm a believer that some of these crypto projects will survive and grow into things that. Uh, you know, 10 years from now, this won't be a, a question anymore. Be, well, of course we're using um, whatever, you know, coin to to do things. Of course there's, you know, smart contracts and, you know, we've removed disintermediation in certain markets. Um, I have no idea what coin that is or what set of coins or what projects, but 
I do think the technology behind these things, and maybe it just goes back to, as you said, I was an electrical engineer once in a uh, once, uh, once, uh, you know, or many moons ago. That's what I'm looking for. Um, uh, so I just think there's a lot of, of, of cool things happening. I want to ask you just two more questions before we wrap up. And the first one is around building models and uh, tracking error. So, you know, firms like like model firms that, that develop strategies like like we we all try to do, you know, we're basically trying to develop strategies that which produce a really good long term return for the investor. But, you know, we also have to kind of remember and keep in mind that the more you try to do that, the more that those strategies obviously can deviate from sort of the standard benchmark. So how do you go about thinking, you know, around tracking error and benchmarks when you guys are actually building and developing your strategies? Yeah, you know, tracking error is a, a nice metric for, I think, those of us in the industry. I'm sure you guys have the same experience as we do that most clients, even, you know, relatively sophisticated, you know, institutional clients, you're talking about tracking error and they're kind of like, I don't know, like three percent, four percent. What does that really mean? Like, you know, um, so it's a tough one. Now, obviously, you know, as we're developing strategies, we want to be very mindful of tracking error and understanding the distribution of returns or the relative distribution of returns and, you know, how much of that tracking error is coming from the upside versus the downside. Um, what's the, you know, what's the distribution look at, you know, looked like, is it skewed in, in a particular way? Um, so I think the metrics are really important for, you know, building strategies, but where we you know come into i think where the problem comes in is how do we communicate strategies how do we talk to clients about things that matter um or that they understand um you know we use a lot of things like batting average and slugging percentage and upside downside capture and um just because you know we found they're, they're pretty simple right you know, so the batting average like yeah i won more than i lost <laughs> okay client goes oh, i get that so most you're up more periods than you're down that that's cool i like that and you know slugging percentage and when we're up you know we do better than when we're down so you know periods where you know we're you know we're 20 percent better than when we're down I'm like oh yeah i kind of get that okay cool i i understand what that means um and uh so we've just developed a number of different, um, we haven't developed, we've taken, these are all, you know, well-known common things out there. And we've just tried to take those type of metrics and use those as our communication tools. Um, and we found that, you know, it, maybe it's just our, our, our bias or wanting to be, wanting it to be true. But as we talk to clients, we feel like they're internalizing the strategies better that way. Um, because, you know, everybody likes a strategy until it goes bad, until it underperforms. And then they're like, wait, what? I didn't get, you didn't explain this to me. Uh, I didn't understand. And you go back to these simple metrics and say, no, no, we did. Like, look, this is, you know, this is what this means. This is how this particular environment fit, you know, historically. And this is how it was reflected in, in, the, in these simple metrics. And like, oh, okay, I kind of get that. So, um, you know, as an industry, and we think about this in our, you know, even our asset allocation tools and, and things like that that we're putting out there, like, how can we do better bridging the gap from investment professional to end uh, client from the person whose, you know, assets we're actually, you know, investing? And that that gap is, 
you know, we hope it's it's shrinking over time as some financial education, you know, picks up. But it's still it's still a pretty broad, uh, it's still a big leap. I think I'm sure you guys have the same challenges as we do. Well, that makes sense. I mean, keeping it, uh, I think, simpler. And plus, you know, you guys are constantly producing really great research pieces and content. So I, that all kind of plays into this, I think, educating the client around your philosophy and your investment strategies, and then hopefully helping them get through those times when those strategies are struggling and not jumping ship. Um, I wanted to, so for the last question, and by the way, this is like our 80th episode of this podcast, and we finally have a concluding question, and you're, you're gonna be the first one that we're gonna ask. Oh uh, no. Because we really, yeah, because we, we really didn't have one, um, but, now we do. So the question is, based on your experience in the market, if you could impart one piece of wisdom or teach one lesson to your average investor, what would that be? Um, I mean, there, there, there's pressure now because every other person you have on the podcast is going to answer this question, and, and I guarantee they're all going to be better than, than me. So uh, um, don't judge the value of this question by my answer, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, I would say two things. Um, so before I say get to the average investor, I, I would I'll just mention the average investment professional, um, folks in our industry, and I, I mentioned this at the top, and I, and I think it's around you know be humble, like don't um, don't believe your own cooking. I think is is another way to say it. Um, so often someone runs a back test and it's amazing and they don't really understand what it's doing. But like, look, it worked. Of course, it's great. You know, um, of course, it's going to work. You know, my my normal question for uh, um, when I see something like that is, well, if, if something is so good, why isn't everyone else already doing it? Like, what have you found? I always think it's an interesting thought experiment to say, Think about the distribution of people in, in the U.S. and try to place yourself from an intelligence perspective on that distribution. I, don't, I mean, I don't know what the right answer is, but let's just say you think you're in the 90th percentile, and there's you know 320 million people in the U.S. That means there's 30 million people that are smarter than you. <laughs> now they're not all doing what we're doing, so fine, but. You know, ask yourself just questions like that. I think it just helps kind of put things in context and helps us to, to ground ourselves a little bit. Um, as far as the, you know, the average investor goes, um, I was a big X-Files fan back in the day. And so the idea of trust no one is still uh, uh, always resonates with me. And that as an average investor, you know, we have to put our, our trust just like when I take my car to the mechanic, I have to put trust in that person that they're, you know, telling me the, the right thing for my car since I know nothing about how, uh, you know, what happens under the hood of a car. Um, you need to, to put some trust into uh, uh, to the folks that you're working with or maybe trust but verify is a, is a better way to say it. But ask questions. Don't, um, don't just assume that someone's telling you something and they always have your best interest in mind because, you know, maybe they do, maybe they don't, or maybe they're... You know, um, you know, maybe they're just, uh, um, you know, not not putting in all the extra work that they need to. This is a now I'm just way off topic, but since I'm the first person to answer this question, I feel like if I go on long enough, uh, you know, my answer won't seem so bad in hindsight. But there's a thing um, you may be familiar with called Hanlon's razor. Occam's razor is the thing everyone talks about. Hanlon's razor. 
I always find interesting. And it basically says, um, don't uh, ascribe to malice, which can equally be ascribed to stupidity. Um, and it's a little bit harsh, but I, I like it because if you think about it, in my mind, I like to think most people aren't malicious. They're not actively trying to do something to hurt someone else. Sometimes they're just doing it because either it's ignorance or, or they're in a hurry or they're dumb, did something dumb or, or whatever it happens to be. Um, but that doesn't mean that what they're doing all the time is in your best interest. So you need to, uh, you need to ask those questions. And with that, I'll, I'll stop talking about this question. We'll be sure to uh, track these responses and um, we'll have to report back to you. <laughs> but that was great. No, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, that's awesome. I didn't mean to put you on the, you did great though. Um, so listen, um, thank you very much for joining us. I've, I've learned a lot in this uh, discussion. Um, if people would like to learn more about, um, I mean, they can go to research, research affiliates, of course, but you know, you, your writing, uh, f uh, keep updated, stay updated on what you're doing um, and working on. What would be the best way to do that? Are you on Twitter? Um, I am on Twitter. Um, I'll be, uh, I'll, I'll say I'm not an active tweeter. Uh, I do like and retweet a number of things. Um, I am actually amazed uh, at the folks who can be active uh, in discussions throughout their day. Um, I find it somewhat distracting. Um, but I am on Twitter. I do tweet some things out. Uh, as you mentioned, researchaffiliates.com. You can subscribe to our newsletter and then anything I write will get sent to you. Um, Hopefully everyone will look at our asset allocation interactive if they haven't and, and find value in that. Um, but yeah, I think uh, um, look forward to, uh, you know, connecting with, with uh, more of your listeners going forward. And uh, I've really enjoyed this. I appreciate you guys having me on. Thank you, Jim. We appreciate it. Thank you. Okay. Thanks. Hi guys, this is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at @practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at @jjcarboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.